Hi, Rachel. (laughs) I said I'm going to start recording in case we say something interesting. Um, Because I feel like that sometimes happens. But I'm like, oh, my God. Same here. This is going to be an interesting one because I'm still. So, like, I came back from New York, obviously, this weekend. And now I'm back in my apartment, which is on the fourth floor. And I don't have any air conditioning. So I'm adjusting to life without air conditioning a dishwasher you know yeah old city probs i don't envy you it's like it's actually it's cooled down quite a bit so it's better but still i'm just like i feel out of it yeah no i feel yeah how long of a drive was that back it's only like six hours only six hours that's awful (laughs) and we had a cat too oh my god she was so annoying she's usually not too bad in the car like she'll meow for a few minutes and then she'll be quiet Mm -hmm. but she meowed for like two hours straight i was like how do you have this many meows like in you have you not released them all she just would not stop i was like about to throw her out of the car (laughs) not actually but i was just like oh my god gary like it, it was just the worst that she's ever been. Yeah. I guess we I are imagine. terrible owners because we, like, moved her from her home to, like, live with another cat and then took her away. And I think her and, like, the other cat were starting to be buddies a little bit. So, but they were they were cute. It was cute to watch them. Sounds like Gary was a little brother or sister. I know, but I don't want to have to clean up. <laughs> Uh, two litter boxes like yeah. one is enough yeah one of my know. one of my best friends christopher he like has always been at least what i knew growing up was like very like not an animal person and now i think he has like four cats oh my gosh i think cats are like potato chips like if you have what's like this i don't know the potato chips are like oh you can't have can't just, just one. one yeah except that like i feel like if you got two cats that there would be no reason not to have like 50 cats (laughs) and they're kind of like low maintenance like you don't have to take them for walks although i do take gary for walks sometimes yeah but that's cute we gotta get her that rain jacket for real oh my god yeah natalie sent me a picture of a kitty cat in a rain jacket it was so cute except gary hates rain and hates storms but she likes the shower for so she's like intrigued by the shower so she's always trying to like poke her head in when i'm showering but she never gets too close because she doesn't want to get wet but she's just like what is this thing and it's actually really cute so we're gonna get her a rain jacket so she can come hang out in the shower and it'll be really fun <laughs> um ollie does that sometimes if i leave the bathroom door open like i'll like turn around and his head is like peeked in <laughs> like, it's so weird i'm like please animals are weird <laughs> 
Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pink Collar Crime, a true crime podcast focusing exclusively on crimes committed by women. I'm Rachel. And I'm Natalie. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Each week, we're going to tell you about one or two cases of crimes committed by women and discuss details, motives, similarities, and differences, etc., etc. If you like our show, tell your friends. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating and tell us what you love or don't love about the show. And give us a follow on social media at pinkcollar underscore pod. Um, so this week, we we actually have this um, topic idea like floating around for a while. Um, and we finally are doing it. It was Rachel's great idea, which is um, basically women who hire hitmen to kill their partners. Yeah, I'm interested to see what happens with your case because um i feel like the topic of hitmen and hiring hitmen is kind of like i don't know the word for it like people are intrigued by it and it's almost like tabloidy kind of yeah um and so going into this i almost didn't expect my case to feel serious but it actually um it's like really quite intense and I think you know just ended kind of unexpectedly I don't know how how your case goes but um I plan to end with a very serious discussion on mental health as per usual um so it is your so you know keep that in the back of your mind look forward to it (laughs) just shake in your boots with anticipation um and while you, it's your week, take it away. I am doing the case of Dahlia Dipolito. Um, so Dahlia Dipolito was born Dahlia Mohammed in New York in 1982. Uh, when she was 13 years old, she and her parents moved to Boynton Beach, Florida, uh, which is actually located in Palm Beach County. And that so is where I'm from. Right by you, neighbor. Yeah, um, I actually lived in Boynton um, when the news about what we're about to talk about, about Dahlia Dipolito's case, broke in 2009. Oh, um, wow. So did you just, like, when I mentioned this topic, were you, like... Like, I instantly knew who I, I, knew. I wanted to do. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. Yeah. Um, and so I'm going to rewind a bit. I'm going to... Um, just kind of go over her life. So Dahlia's father left her mother for another woman when she was 17 years old, and Dahlia remained in the care of her mother. When she was in her 20s, Dahlia moved to Los Angeles, California. Sources claim that in LA, she created a fake identity um, using a fake name and pretending to work for a chiropractor's office. Um, In California is where she learned the craft of luring rich men and subsequently breaking their hearts. Um, So one of uh, her former trysts claims that Dahlia bragged about getting a rich man to fall so hard for her that he bought her a Mercedes and proposed to her with a $40,000 engagement ring that she kept. Oh, boy. Uh, Yeah. Um, And so uh, during that time, Dahlia traveled frequently between California and Florida. In October of 2008, Michael DiPolito, a married 38-year-old man whose wife was out of town, decided he wanted an escort. Acquiring an escort, like, kind of like acquiring, like, serious drugs like meth or whatever, um, 
is something that I've just never really understood how people, how there are just people out there who somehow know where to look. Um, and I, I also, web. yeah. And I also don't understand, like if you go online and you look for an escort, I guess, like how, like why, how, why are you so certain that this isn't like a cop? I don't know. Um, that would be like my first assumption. Yeah. But he figured it out. Um, so he knew exactly where to go. And he had said escort meet him at his office. The escort was a 26 year old Dahlia. Uh, Michael was so enamored with Dahlia that by the time his wife returned uh, later that same month, he asked her for a divorce. And in just four months. Oh, uh, gosh. Yeah. And so in just four months, he, she moved from California back to Florida and into Michael's home and Dahlia Muhammad officially became Dahlia DiPolito. So by the following year, Dahlia had conned Michael out of $240,000. Michael had owed restitution payments for a fraud scheme that he was involved in. And Dahlia said that she would submit the payments for him. And so he was giving her anywhere from six to $7,000 at a time to make these payments on his behalf and none of which she ever actually made. So she was just pocketing all of this money. In addition to stealing $240,000 of Michael's savings, she convinced him to put his house solely in Dahlia's name. Um, and so Dahlia had also done another, a number of other things to uh, try to ruin Michael's life. And so because he was involved in that fraud scheme and was convicted, um, he was on probation. And so part of being on probation means that you basically have to become a model citizen. You have to follow the law to the letter. And um, so naturally, Dahlia was like, maybe I can get him like out of the picture that way. And so she planted drugs in his car and then she called the police to tip them off. But um, nothing ever came of that. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, while all of that was going on, sources also say that Dahlia was still in a relationship with a man in California. At this time, Dahlia was still in contact with a former lover. And so like within that that first year of met marriage, that former lover of Dahlia's alleges that Dahlia confided in him that she had already tried to kill Michael three times but failed. She tried hiring guys off the street to kill Michael, but the guys off the street kind of backed out. She tried poisoning him by putting antifreeze in Michael's iced green tea. Um, oh my God. But she put so much antifreeze in it that the moment he like tasted it, he spit it out. Well, yeah. He's like, wow, my tea tastes like antifreeze. Yeah. <laughs> That's um, not surprising. Yeah. And then um, the kind of final straw, I guess, was the ex-lover that Dahlia was confiding in. Um, he found like his handgun in Dahlia's purse. So she was trying to steal his gun from him so that he she could use that gun to kill Michael her husband herself and so he like got the gun back and then um he took all of this information to the police and so unbeknownst to dahlia she was now on the boynton beach police department's radar um dahlia was committed to finding a way to kill her husband after all of her failed attempts she decided that murder for hire was the best option um dahlia hatched a plan in which she would offer seven thousand dollars to a hitman in exchange for her for murdering her husband um i will say that i saw one report that said it was three thousand dollars another one that said seven thousand um wait that's so crazy mine is seven thousand dollars too i guess that's the is that the market rate (laughs) 
I guess so. I'm not trying to be funny. I'm just like genuinely <laughs> wondering. I guess. Working with the police, uh, Dahlia's ex-lover, who had actually tipped the police off, arranged a meeting between Dahlia and a hitman that he just so happened to know. Dahlia asked no questions about how he just so happens to know a hitman who's eager to do this job for her, but um, she went with it. So little did she know that the hitman was actually an undercover police officer. Um, all of Dahlia's interactions with this officer were recorded. Um, and in one of the recordings, the officer, the undercover officer slash fake hitman, um, gives Dahlia a chance to back out to which she responded. No, there's no changing. I'm positive. Like 5,000% sure. Just fun fact, like in the recordings, like 5,000% sure is like something that she says a lot. Like she's like, when I set my mind to something, like I set my mind to it, like 5,000%. So, like, like, catchphrase. Yeah, but I'm like, that's not a percentage, so chill out. Um, Yeah, that's too (laughs) many. That's not realistic. Yeah. Um, And so the officer slash fake hitman said, um, quote, I want to make sure that this is what you want. Are you sure you want to kill this dude? And Dahlia responded, ha, I would be very happy. Um, so the officer went on to warn Dahlia of what the aftermath could look like and how she might face a ton of questions from the police, uh, to which Dahlia said, I'm a lot tougher than I look. I know what you're thinking. You're like, okay, what a cute little girl, but I'm not, I'm not. I just need to make sure everything's getting taken care of. So she, boy. Yeah, so she's very confident. She is a lot tougher than she looks. Um, And so that week, uh, the police staged Michael DiPolito's death. Uh, Basically, uh, Dahlia arrived at their home and there were police everywhere. They notified her that there was a robbery and Michael was murdered in the process. Like a true actress, Dahlia was hysterical, sobbing, crying, blubbering. Like uh, she seemed like truly broken up about the fact that her husband was supposedly dead and her performance like truly might have convinced police of her genuine shock that her husband was dead if you know they hadn't known that she was that she was the mastermind behind the whole thing um, and that he wasn't actually dead and so the police brought Dahlia in for questioning and revealed to her that Michael wasn't dead to prove it Michael appeared from a distance and she was at this point still committed to her performance and so Dahlia acted shocked she screamed oh my god and begged Michael to come to her and he was like I can't I can't fix this and so um like the police actually obviously they approached michael first they basically um before they even staged the death like they knocked on um their their home their the door at their home and was like hey um we're just here to let you know that your wife is trying to kill you and he's like what and so he didn't believe it until um the police actually played the recordings for him and then obviously seeing her performance after um thinking that she was dead um really kind of was like the nail in the coffin there and he was like wow i cannot believe that this is my wife that's so sad 
Yeah. And so police then let Dahlia know that she was under arrest for solicitation of first degree murder. Uh, Dahlia denied everything. She just kept saying, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. Um, Even when she would speak to Michael, um, like she would say to him, look him dead in the face or on the phone or whatever. She would just repeat, I didn't do anything to you. Um, And so I part of me feels like she genuinely believes that like hiring someone to kill another human being isn't a crime. Like she's like, well, I didn't do it seems to be right. Like what she's hanging her hat on. She's getting off on a technicality. Yeah. But I don't like that's, there's no technicality there. Like it's still a crime. If you are paying (laughs) someone to commit a crime then, and like the only thing that's causing the crime to go through is your payment to like, supply the action of the other person to mm-hmm. go out and kill someone yeah then i f- you're both responsible you and the hit yeah. person exactly um and so yeah she just kept saying i didn't do anything and so at this point the do- that's when the officers finally let her know that like they recorded everything that she was talking to an undercover police officer that that wasn't really a hitman and that she should probably be smarter and like check credentials or something next time <laughs> Um, I'm sure they didn't say that last part, but I just feel like, I don't know. Why would you not think that this is a cop? I don't know. (laughs) Um, Right. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, they let her know that she recorded everything and they knew that she attempted to hire and orchestrate the murder of her husband. They also let her know that they knew about the also the like previous attempts to like kill her husband, like, um, Uh, the anti-freeze situation and stuff like that. And so in 2011, Dahlia was convicted and sentenced to 20 years in prison. That's it? Yeah. 20 years. That seems like not a lot. It ends up being less than that. So Dahlia appealed this decision um, and the original verdict was actually thrown out. And so there were actually a few reasons for this. And one of the reasons was that the recordings of Dahlia's case were featured on an episode of Cops, Um, specifically like Dahlia's performance when she found out that her husband was quote unquote dead, um, Mm -hmm. that I remember watching that um, when I was, what was 2009? I was like, what, 14? Um, Yeah. So that like was a big thing on just regular news stations like all the time and then also just featured like nationally on cops. Um, And then kind of like you said, like cases like this really do get sensationalized and um, become kind of tabloidy and just all over the news. Um, In her case, like here's like a beautiful young 26 year old like girl and this is what happened. And so I think the media really ran with this whole story. Um, And so because of that, the judge felt that the prosecution didn't do a good job of selecting jurors. Basically, they felt like the prosecution didn't adequately ask questions to make sure that the jury um, like didn't have like previous biases given any news coverage, like having watched um, the cops airing or seeing anything on um, like various like more salacious like news channels or anything like that. In addition, um, the prosecution did not do a good job at ensuring that the jury was not influenced by outside knowledge of the case during the case. Um, And so the case went to trial again. And I believe that that time it actually resulted in a mistrial. 
eventually it went to trial once more. And I think it was 2017 uh, that she was reconvicted, but this time she was sentenced to 16 years in prison. Interesting. Yeah. And like throughout all of this, like she ended up like because like the original crime like happened in 2009. And so she, you know, didn't start essentially her sentence till 2017. And like between that period, she like got pregnant. Like she not by her not by her husband, by someone else. I don't know how she got pregnant. Was she Um, in jail? I assume she must have been on like house arrest or something. Um, But yeah, so she she like lived a whole life. And yeah, so now she's in jail. I, I think I read something about or like um like she's continuing like tons and tons of appeals like she i don't know what her like defense is but she doesn't feel like she should be in jail i don't know i feel like a lot of this i feel like a lot of times a lot of cases like these sometimes can be a little bit of like the narcissism kind of right a bit and i i feel like i can see that with her obviously whether it's like clinical or clinically significant or not i don't know but i don't know i think feeling like she has the power to convince men to do whatever she wants and then like no accountability or accepting responsibility for like her reaction or her um actions um just seems to be pretty apparent but yeah she's currently in prison i wouldn't be surprised if she tried to submit something to get out because of covid um but yeah it's so crazy that you're saying that also there's so many parallels between our cases and i'll get into that i love when Um, that happens it's it's almost like almost the same case um which is so interesting that you know they're following the exact same like even down to like how much money was offered. That's oh really cool. So wild. Um, yeah. Did you have anything else to say about your case? I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh no no no. Um, yeah no that was pretty much it. Like she was just a very cruel person. Even like after she found out, um, or before she, I think before she knew that Michael knew. Um, wait, no. Yeah, so when she was in, like, police custody and before she, like, knew, before they, like, showed her Michael, but they had already told her that, like, Michael was still alive, I think she, like, there was a report that she, like, called her mom and obviously all police calls, like, all calls going out of, like, a correctional facility are um, recorded. Um, And so she calls her mom and she's like, the deed to the house is in my name, so you need to go over there and you need to kick him out like oh wow just, yeah like insanely cruel and then they bring him in and she's like oh my god michael come here please michael and it's like girl like who are you fooling like i don't yeah, know that's, I, a, that's a little tough yeah just there just seems to be some intense like pathological something like there right, and i just right. don't know yeah so very fascinating case but oh i oh one thing i wanted to add that yeah is especially sad with your case is that she got pregnant and she had a kid and she's you know still incarcerated obviously i really feel for yeah. for her child that's that's so hard to be separated from your family and that's just yeah that's rough definitely So we can go on to my case then, which is 
very similar to your case. Um, but so I'll be doing the case of Valerie Cincinnelli. Um, so to start, Isaiah Carvalho Jr. was just in his house in New York one day when he heard a knock on the door. When he answered, he was surprised to be greeted by the cops. They explained to him that someone was trying to murder him and that someone was his estranged wife of four years, Valerie Cincinnelli. The officers had a proposal. They wanted Isaiah to fake his own death and as a part of um, fake his own death as a part of a sting operation. So Valerie had a new boyfriend, and she wanted uh, him to hire a hitman to take care of her husband and her boyfriend, whose name is John Deruba's school-aged daughter. Um, so she wanted to kill her husband and her new boyfriend's daughter, which Wait. was a little confusing to me at first. I yeah. thought that she wanted to kill the husband's daughter. But so it was her husband, and then separately, her current boyfriend's so school-aged wait, did, daughter. I, I don't know if I misheard. Did you say that she wanted her boyfriend to hire a hitman yes. to do this? So she wanted her boyfriend to hire a hitman to kill his own kid? Yes. It's okay. very messed up. Okay. Um, <laughs> but so, so five months before, Isaiah had filed for divorce against Valerie. Supposedly, there was a messy custody battle, but at the time of the murder for hire, things seemed to be almost settled. Um, so a little bit of history about Valerie. So she lived in Queens for, for quite a while, and she was a police officer working in the domestic violence unit. She joined the police department in 2007 and worked in the 106th precinct until 2017. She was then placed on modified duty where she was assigned to a unit that monitored surveillance feed in public housing developments. At that point, she was no longer permitted to carry a gun. So she received this, I don't know if it would be called like a demotion or some type of punishment. So she apparently shared confidential information with her boyfriend. At the time, it wasn't clear if it's the same boyfriend, John, or someone else, which led to this reassignment. So, Valerie had a bit of a rocky past when it came to romantic relationships. Her first husband had a restraining order against her, and her and Isaiah, who was her second husband, also had restraining orders against each other. And at some point, she also sought a restraining order against her current boyfriend, John. So, she hatched a plan to make her husband's death look like a robbery gone wrong. Isaiah sold fireworks for a living. Um... And then Valerie's plan for John's daughter would be a hit and run near her school. So in February of that year, Valerie withdrew $7,000 from a bank in Wontaw, New York. And on the same day, her boyfriend bought five ounces of gold coins worth about $6,900 from Massapequa Park in New York. At this point, Valerie and John had discussed this plot many times. Valerie was even using social media to track the whereabouts of John's daughter. John had grown very uneasy um, at the beginning of all this and decided to go to the authorities. So John was not the most reliable person, having apparently made false allegations against Valerie in the past. Um, He was also described by his neighbors as a mafia wannabe and that he had hung around with the Sopranos cast. Um, but either way, John went to the FBI and let them know about his girlfriend's plan. Sopranos. Sopranos? Yeah. 
Sopranos. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> I never watched it. I don't. I don't know words. Um, on May thirteenth, Valerie met with John, but what she didn't know was that he was wearing a wire. Valerie had an explanation to ensure that she was not considered a person of interest um, in this case of of Wolfie's murders. For one, she would be far away from the killings and have an alibi, and the killings would take place on two different days, so it wouldn't appear that they were linked. Additionally, the attack on Isaiah would not be suspicious because of his workplace, which was located near on Long Island, and in her recording, she said it was in the hood or the ghetto, which... I hate when people say stuff like that, so that's frustrating. But um, the FBI decided to convince Valerie that her plan had worked. This is the same as, as your case, too. Um, so I, apparently this must be a common protocol for if there's a murder for hire to convince someone it works. So a detective from Suffolk County reached out to Valerie in her home of Oceanside, New York, to let her know they were investigating the death of her husband. They brought Isaiah into an undisclosed location put him in a car, covered him in shattered glass, and had him slump over to create the illusion that he was dead. Um, Less than an hour later, after informing Valerie, the FBI agents sent her a text from the killer, so they were posing as the hitman, with a picture of the crime scene. Valerie reached out to her boyfriend immediately after, urging him to delete his text messages and attempted to align their alibis. The FBI came and arrested her later that day and charged her with the use of interstate commerce commerce for murder for hire. Valerie claimed to be innocent, saying she gave John money to buy gold coins not to pay for a hitman, despite the fact that there were recordings and all kinds of other things kind of proving that she did in fact want to hire a hitman. So she's currently in jail. Um... And just as an update, in June of 2020, a federal appellate court turned down a request for Valerie to be released on bond. Her attorney argued that she should be released on a $1.5 million bond, and she should be allowed to live with her father, who is a retired NYPD police lieutenant. Valerie had concerns over the coronavirus pandemic, as she was assigned to washing clothes of COVID-infected inmates without any protective equipment. However, upon further clarification, it was said that she was volunteering for the job and that she was only folding clean clothing, so she wasn't having to wash the dirty clothing. But, I mean, I do feel for her. I think that jail or prison is the absolute last place I would want to be right now in the middle of a pandemic and you know you can almost guarantee that people don't have proper access to like soap or masks or um you know aren't able they're already severely limited you know yeah like so many prisons are already like underfunded and not right and the conditions aren't the best and so yeah i feel for every person regardless of your crime who has to be in prison right now in particular prisons that are kind of covid infested and there are um you know imprisoned people that are um dying i think it's horrifying and yeah but I, on a related note, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this before, but like 
there are some YouTubers I watched that are women that used to be in jail and prison, and they mm-hmm. talk a lot about their experiences. And just going off of, you know, what they've said, it's like sometimes you don't even have enough toilet paper or, like, sanitary napkins. They don't even give you tampons in prison. So, you know, they're definitely not... Yeah being protected as far as the coronavirus. Meanwhile, there are, meanwhile, this country is rampant with for-profit prisons, which insane, but sure. <laughs> um, Anywho. Yeah. So that was, you know, denied. Um, so another article from the New York Daily News, which is kind of a questionable source, or I don't know if it's questionable or just the way that they write is hilarious it's just like so unprofessional and like very dramatized but also just kind of funny um but so the new york daily news was talking about the possibility of this whole case being turned into a lifetime movie which kind of sounds like the perfect fit for this case you know isaiah's attorney was talking with dateline who had connections with lifetime the article suggested that Isaiah didn't have a lot of money, so it's possible that his main motivation for pursuing this would be to get some source of income. I can't imagine that, you know, having to pay for lawyers and deal with all this publicity um, from the story has been great for his financial situation or, you know, emotional situation, and that might be his way of trying to, you know, gain some stability Mm-hmm. Although I do wonder if it's kind of predatory on behalf of Lifetime to kind of, you know, give someone an offer that they can't refuse when they've already been through so much. Um, yeah. But so another New York Daily News article um, was released and it was an article where they interviewed John post arrest or post Valerie's arrest. So they said that he was lovesick over Valerie. He still loved her despite the fact that she tried to have his daughter killed Uh, The couple actually had matching tattoos that said, till death, and John said he was trying to focus on the good times they had together. He said he was in... (laughs) Don't laugh. Sorry. Um, He said he was in therapy three times a week to try to make sense of everything, but, you know, I I honestly really feel for the guy. He did the right thing by contacting the authorities, but I can't imagine how difficult it would be for someone to take that step. And he also shared, I don't know how valid this is, but he shared that Valerie was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and that she really just needed help, which, yes, it is always very important to seek mental health care. And it should, like, just because someone's in prison or in jail does not mean that they should be denied access to care. In fact, I think that people who are in jail or are in prison probably need care than, like, more than anyone. Like, it's just such a tough situation emotionally to be in and obviously you know there were some failures on the part of the system or you know there's just a lot going on with you if you are end up in that place so um i you know i'm not hopeful that she's getting the care that she needs now that she is in prison kind of awaiting i think awaiting trial um but anyway so this next part is i'm going to put a trigger warning out there um it is talking about suicide so um in july of 2019 valerie's brother salvatore sal cincinelli was found dead in a bar in austin texas sal who was 41 at the time worked in wall street as a trader 
In 2011, he joined the FBI and led financial crime investigations in New York City before being promoted to the Bureau's headquarters in Washington, D.C. His death was investigated as a suicide. The FBI did not choose to comment on his death. So the reason that I bring this up is because this maybe suggests a history of mental illness in the family. Um, It's, you know, very sad, and I think... The family, especially, you know, it's a very law enforcement strong family. And I think, you know, there's probably a lot of stress and difficulty that comes along with that. And like I said, I think that this just goes to show that there may be some biological issues or, you know, something something with a family that needed to be addressed that maybe just wasn't you know, they weren't actively seeking treatment or, or things like that. So on that note, I do want to talk about some misconceptions. So there are a lot of misconceptions surrounding people with mental disorders. And one of the assumptions is that people with mental disorders are more likely to be violent. Um, so this stigma is especially strong when it comes to people with bipolar disorder. So when it comes to bipolar disorder, about 11 to 16% of people have had a violent episode. And this can be attributed to a manic episode and or alcohol or drug use. Um, So actually large population studies suggest that mental illness alone does not make someone more likely to be violent. However, people with bipolar disorder may be at a greater risk for being violent if there is drug or alcohol use, or there is high emotional distress, which can come along with a manic episode. Um, And just to give a little bit more clarity on bipolar disorder, I know a lot of people, like, if your mood changes really quickly, then people are like, oh, that's bipolar. But bipolar disorder is actually categorized from manic episodes where, you know, people engage in kind of I don't know if it's correct to say like reckless behavior, but, you know, it's just they might put themselves at risk for financial harm. They may gamble. They may drive their cars, you know, quickly. Yeah. It just kind of feels sexual like sexual decisions. Um, right. Gambling, all stuff like that. Yeah. Thinking back to the skid, <laughs> although I, I don't ever <laughs> I don't ever think that I had to go through this section. Um but and then it's mania coupled with depressive episodes and they don't switch back and forth like at the drop of a hat or pin whatever the saying is yeah no um so so those with bipolar disorder actually might be more likely to harm themselves than anyone else as they are at an increased risk for suicide, drug or alcohol use, cutting or non-physical damage. Damage. So like we were saying, kind of engaging in that high-risk behavior, um, harming their finances, their relationships or other aspects of their life due to, you know, the, the outcomes of a, a manic, tr- an untreated manic episode. Um, and so, you know, I can definitely see where, uh, untreated bipolar disorder might lead to someone hiring a hitman and, you know, kind of having these delusions of grandeur. Um, I think that that, that would make sense. But overall, I, I believe, you know, the statistics show that having a mental illness actually 
puts you at a higher risk to be harmed by others. So I don't want to perpetuate the stigma that, you know, someone with a mental illness is more likely to harm someone else. Um, yeah. And I, I guess, like, disclaimer, if you or someone you know is experiencing any of these symptoms, like, talk to someone. Just, like, talk to a therapist, talk to your doctor. You know, there are treatments out there, and obviously, like, we wouldn't want anyone to harm themselves or, or harm someone else, and it can be a little bit of a confusing or, or tricky situation if, you know, someone is maybe hurting themselves or, or hurting someone else, but... I don't think that, you know, it's better to get it treated early on and to address it. And obviously, you know, mental health professionals have a background in training and know when to alert the authorities, when not to alert the authorities. So always talk to a therapist. Yeah. Agreed. Great PSA. Our music is the track Wasteland by Joseph McDade. His Patreon and our podcast sources will be linked in the podcast description below. Any mistakes are entirely our own, so check out our wonderful sources for the most accurate information about these cases. We talk about some tough subject matter on our show. If you or someone you love is in need of support, please reach out to the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME to 741741. They are available 24-7 and will connect you with a trained crisis counselor. You can also reach the National Domestic Violence Hotline by calling 1-800-799-7233. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Join us next week for another episode of Pink Collar, a true crime podcast.